trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. I want to mention my sponsors here quickly. Dixie Chiropractic, HSL Ammo, Sewing and Quilting Center, Monticello College, Life-Saving Food, and also the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. I've got Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com on the line with me. Eric, always appreciate our weekly reality checks. At least I feel more grounded after after we talk, so, so thank you in advance. Oh, sure, and I also feel better in that uh, I don't feel like I'm the only person who holds these kooky views that we hold. It's it's a crazy time, and and on on the one hand, that means job security for commentators like you and me, especially those who are are promoting a message of freedom. On the other hand, yep. there's a lot of crazy stuff going on right now. There's a lot of crazy stuff going on. Yeah, let's let's, let's dive right in and talk a little bit about cryptocurrency. There was there was a mass, yep. massacre of sorts that took place over the weekend or just before the end of last week. Um, talk to me about what was going on with cryptocurrency. What are your thoughts? Well, uh, one, I think that the, uh, the term is apt crypto in that it's hidden and nobody seems to understand what it is or can explain what it is adequately. I've looked into it extensively myself and I, I've come up with all these, these, uh, these supposed explanations that it has to do with, with mining of Bitcoin and uh, you know, the number of Bitcoins that can be issued is inherently limited somehow. I don't understand it. And, you know, when I can't understand something that ought to be pretty straightforward and simple, like money, uh, I get hesitant. That's the word I want to use about getting involved with it. And so I'm glad that I didn't get involved with it because, as you mentioned, um, over the past several days, the value of it has dumped by, I think, half to two thirds. So a lot of people who had their, their money tied up in Bitcoin are now feeling pain even worse than the pain being inflicted on us by the Biden thing in terms of the devaluation of the dollar. I still have, there's a part of me that wants to believe, and this is probably the part that is just looking about for solutions. I am losing faith in the U.S. dollar. I'm losing faith in mm-hmm. um, in fiat currency as issued under our, our central bank. So I want to believe that there is some other place where we can hold a store of value where it's not going to be subject to the approval of government or any of its intermediaries. And for a while, it looked like crypto might might be the solution to that. But man, it's volatile. Well, that's the lore that they put out in front of us. But you know, the thing that kind of kept me, and again, I'll use the word hesitant, is that it's a digital thing, that it's online. And they tell us, at least the advocates of Bitcoin say, well, it's got these blockchain security measures and it's anonymous and all of that. And I don't buy that. I don't think that anything that's online um, is anonymous. And certainly anything that's online is not under your control, is it? You know, if you have uh, a silver uh, one-ounce coin or an ounce of gold coin, uh, you physically got the gold and you've got the silver. And yeah, the value of it might fluctuate according to markets, but it can't just be you know disappeared at a keystroke. And they can't simply take it away from you, your ability to buy and sell, your, your ability to purchase. And I think that's a real problem with any form of digital, digital currency, whether it's something that's issued by these Bitcoin people, whoever they are, uh, or whether it's issued uh, by banks or by the government. Anything that is online, I think at this point, given everything that's happened so far, we should be very, very careful about, if not very suspicious of. 
Yeah, and and especially the um, the government equivalent of cryptocurrency, the central bank uh, digital yeah. currencies. That's the stuff of economic fascism writ large. Yeah, and you know, I think that there's a possibility, and maybe I'm just paranoid, that Bitcoin was meant to get people into that idea. In other words, to habituate to the, uh, it to them, to normalize the idea of, of having their finances handled in that manner, to make it seem cool and trendy and new and all of that. Um, and it, it doesn't strike me as a coincidence. It seems that Bitcoin sort of came out of nowhere a lot like Facebook did and Twitter did and these opaque origins, who's behind it, where did the money come from, are bothersome. Yeah, and it, it, it makes me think more and more. Maybe guys like you and I are just, uh, we're a bit anachronistic. Yep, you know, I, I'm I'm pretty fond of gold and silver and, you know, precious metals, things that have been valued as money, you know, for pretty much all of recorded human history. And and maybe maybe there's a reason for that. Sure, sometimes being old school or anachronistic is a good thing. Uh, it's very difficult to inflate gold or silver because it's a, you know, it's a, it's a hard asset. You have to actually mine it, not like Bitcoin mining. You actually have to go out there and dig it up, and there's not that much of it. It's very hard to find it. And then you have to uh, refine it and smelt it and all of these things that inherently limit the ability of some entity to manipulate its value. And I think that's a profoundly important thing. One of the things that uh, characterizes money, or which I think should, is stability. You should feel comfortable in that, okay, if I, you know, if I work and I, I earn money and I, and I want to store it, that you should be able to store it in a manner that's, uh, that's stable, that's tied to something that's of value, that's not subject to just some ephemeral shift in some speculative market where all of a sudden you wake up one day and find uh, that the money that you put into whatever it is is now only worth 50% or, or, or you know, not even 25% of what it was worth 24 hours before. Yep. I All I know is I don't feel safe with all of my money sitting in the bank after seeing what happened to the Canadian truckers and those who supported them. Yeah. It's very, very clear that we're moving toward a system of centralized control and uh, even yep. more centralized than it already is. So I'm open to suggestions, and, and I really hope crypto might be one of them, but um, you make a pretty strong case. We just we can't hang our hats on it, not at this point. Yeah, I'd like to see more clarity. I'd like to... Uh, have uh, some transparency. Okay, who exactly is behind this? Uh, how is it that it, it uh, is limited to? I forgot the number. They'll, they'll say something like, "I think it's fifty thousand bitcoins or something, and no more of those can be mined." How exactly does that work? And in, in, in a way that anybody who isn't stupid can can readily understand. I think if they could do that, uh, I think people would have a lot more confidence in it. So give me your general feeling on the, the health of the U.S. dollar. I mean, we're watching inflation eat away the purchasing power of dollars pretty quick. Are, are we looking at some kind of change in, in the uh, near future? Well, yeah, I, I'm surprised, actually, that it is as healthy as it is, um, that we're only suffering something like, a, I think, a 15% devaluation of its purchasing power over the past 12 months could be a lot worse, and it probably will be, as I understand historical trends when these sorts of things get rolling. Uh, at first, you have this relatively mild to relatively severe kind of inflation that we've experienced, and I like to use devaluation because I think that's a, a more accurate term. But anyway, then all of a sudden, a point, a tipping point is reached where uh, people lose confidence in the value of the money and its ability to hold value, and then it tanks. And then overnight, 
you have a situation where you have to push a, a wheelbarrow full of paper dollars to the store to get a loaf of bread. Yeah, there's a very uh, striking illustration you use in your article of a roll of toilet paper made up of dollar bills. And for people in the know, it's like it's really when people stop believing in it, it's it's paper. That's all it is. Yep, exactly. Exactly. Uh, I think paper dollars that are tied to gold or silver are okay. You know, we had that once in this country where if you had a dollar bill, you could go to a bank and upon demand, that was the terminology, you could get, I think it was an ounce of silver. And so, you know, the paper had not only had value in that sense, but it was also stable because they couldn't just print more dollars. You know, that was a fundamentally dishonest, a fraudulent thing because what it did was to devalue uh, the purchasing power of the dollars that were held by other people. It's, you know, fundamentally a form of theft, but a very subtle and uh, sneaky form where people don't actually see the dollars taken out of their pockets. What they see is that they're, the dollars in their pockets all of a sudden don't buy as much as they used to. No. Now, we're, we're about a minute from, from having to take our break. When we come back, though, uh, speaking of not being able to buy as much as we used to, I want to pick your brain a little bit about where people could shop for used cars, understanding that it's a near impossibility right now. Uh, I think it's, I think maybe even harder to find a good used car than a, than a new one. And that's tough. Yeah, it is, but it's a near, and we can talk about that more after the break. Okay. Again, we're talking with Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com. Eric, something else that, uh, that I wanted to uh, just, we've got, again, we've got like 60 seconds here. Let's, mm-hmm. uh, let's get your take on, uh, COVID mania, is it subsiding? Are we likely to see a resurgence? It seems things have been pretty quiet on that front. Well, I think think it's certain we're going to see a resurgence of the hysteria. Uh, In my area, it seems that the hysterics have uh, burbled down to about a third of the population. It's been stable in that sense for the past several months. And when uh, when I say about a third, that's the number of people that I see continuing to wear the holy face diaper. Um, The rest of the people aren't, but that that third uh, is strongly clinging to their diapers. Yeah, and, and, it, and it sounds like uh, this World Health Organization treaty, which we may want to touch on here in the next segment, may be something yeah. worth keeping an eye on just because that sounds like a one-size-fits-all approach for the next time, you know, someone invokes the pandemic. Hold that thought. We'll yeah. come back in just a moment. Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com is my guest. If you look at my show notes at thebrianheitshow.com, there's a nice link that will take you directly to his website. Stay with us. We'll be back right after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. We're talking with Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com. All right, Eric, a couple quick things here. Mm-hmm. Let's uh, let's take a moment to talk about, first of all, let's talk about uh, used cars. I feel bad mm-hmm. for anybody who is in the market for a used car. You had a very, uh, a very good article last week about affordable used cars are still available if mm-hmm. you wait for them. Walk us through that. Sure. Right now, there's a kind of a speculative bubble in the price of used cars for a number of reasons. I think you and I have touched on them before. One is the relative dearth of supply of new vehicles. Another is that a lot of people just don't want new vehicles and are trying to snap up the uh, older vehicles that are less nanny-ish, less over-tech, 
don't have a lot of the, uh, the features that you and I don't like so much. Um, but that doesn't mean that there still aren't buys out there. And I riffed in the article off of um, uh, uh, my, my buddy's nephew, who's, I guess, 19 years old, who managed to find himself a really good deal on the proverbial little old lady's car. Uh, and uh, he, he was very scrupulous about watching the local used car ads, not the, the big eBay's, not, uh, you know, not, not the, 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 the car dealership lots and all of that, where you're guaranteed a top dollar plus for any kind of a car. He waited until he found an ad that was put forward by the family of uh, an older lady who could no longer drive. And these people weren't looking to make a killing. They just needed to get rid of this car because the older lady couldn't drive it anymore. Uh, so he was ready. He had already gotten his cash in hand, and he was prepared to pounce as soon as an opportunity like that came up. And he literally went and got the car that very same day. And that's what you got to do in order to get a deal. you got to keep your eyes open. You have to keep your ears open and just wait for your opportunity, which will come up. And when it comes up, be prepared to act. Be prepared to drop everything right now and go and see and potentially buy that car. But you got to have the patience. And talk to me about cash in hand. I get the impression that yeah. uh, you're, you're not a fan of, uh, hey, let's spread this out over the next six years. Let me keep paying on this uh, depreciating asset. Well, and you can't do that with private sellers. When you go to a private seller, they're going to expect you to pay for the car in full. And uh, the other side of that equation is the benefit to you as the potential buyer is the cash really does a lot of talking. Um, when you show up to meet somebody who's trying to sell their car and they can see that you've got that envelope from the bank that's full of money that you're prepared to give them to take that car off their hands, it's a big incentive uh, to come to terms. So provided that the asking price is within reason and provided you're willing uh, to haggle on a reasonable basis, it's very likely that you're going to end up being able to strike a deal. Now, there is a caution, and you know, this is an important thing for people to consider if they're not aware of it. When you travel by car or travel anywhere uh, to, to go look at a, a used vehicle and you have got money from the bank in your pocket, be extra careful because of these, these loathsome civil asset forfeiture laws, wherein if you get pulled over for speeding or some other broken taillight kind of infraction and a cop happens to see that you've got that envelope sitting there on the, on the passenger seat, they can take your money. They can just seize it and then claim that it was uh, the result of illegal drug activity. And then it's up to you to try to convince the, the system that, no, in fact, it wasn't. And uh, they're only obligated to give it back to you if they feel like it. So be very, very careful about carrying large sums of money anywhere in public. Yep. Yep. I would agree. I would agree. Give me your take on uh, the World Health Organization's uh, conference, which kicks off here in just a couple of days. Um, in which yeah. they're, they're looking at a, apparently a global treaty, a one-size-fits-all approach that every nation who's part of that treaty would be required to, to uh, adhere to if another pandemic is declared. I, I'm, I'm sure you're aware of this. I'd like mm -hmm. to get your thoughts on it. I am. Well, terrifying, isn't it? Uh, essentially, it's a surrender of, uh, you know, they'll put it in terms of national sovereignty, but of our sovereignty and of us becoming in thrall and beholden to these UN bureaucrats, these people who we can't even vote out of office, uh, you know, who are so remote from us uh, that they can do whatever they want to us. And we have literally no recourse whatsoever except physical resistance. Now, my hope is, as I understand the way the Constitution and procedure is supposed to work, that the Senate would have to ratify this thing in order for it to have the force of law. And I'm hopeful that there are enough senators left in the Senate, even now, uh, to not have that happen. 
Wow. I mean, it was it was bad enough to watch it unrolled, you know, from the various municipalities and states and and nationally. But I can only imagine what would happen if you centralize this to a global level. Um, we would all end up looking like, I presume, Australia or maybe New Zealand or maybe Shanghai or China. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or China, where uh, the, the ruling clack has uh, promulgated this zero covid standard. In other words, uh, these lockdowns and uh, all of their police state type things that are ongoing over there will never end uh, until there's no COVID at all, meaning nobody getting sick ever, which is an impossible standard, which means that this will be a permanent police state forever. Wow. Man, I, you know, there's, there's a part of me that really wants to believe, okay, sanity has finally returned. People are starting to see the light. And I think a lot of people have finally realized, you know what, this was all unnecessary. The lockdowns, the masks, the forced um, vaccinations was for nothing. But I don't think that message has yet reached the people in power. Yeah, no, it was for something. And uh, it wasn't by accident. Uh, I've maintained for a long time now that this isn't simply um, uh, uh, an error out of abundance of caution, that these people were well-intended, that they were just trying to keep us safe, as they always like to say. They knew, everybody knew. Anybody who did any due diligence would have known within a few months of the pandemic um, uh, uh, springing forth in 2020 that, yeah, maybe this is something that people who are very elderly, very obese, who already have a lot of uh, chronic health problems ought to be maybe concerned about and perhaps should take some uh, some countermeasures to uh, to mitigate. But that for the rest of us, this is not a big deal and life should go on perfectly well and that It is no justification at all to close people's businesses, to destroy their livelihoods, uh, much less to force people, particularly kids. This is one of the most loathsome and obnoxious aspects of it. Kids to be shot up with drugs by these pharmaceutical companies. You know, it's malicious. And you have to ask yourself, and what's what's the end point? What's the goal of such malicious action? Yeah, I'm with you. And and I know that memories fade quickly, and it's been a couple of years since we saw, you know, the police arresting people and taking them to jail for, oh, I don't know, jogging, sitting in their cars, looking at yeah. sunsets. They at least give them tickets for that, chasing down the lone guy out there on a paddleboard out on the ocean. Yeah. Uh, you know, right. you have to wonder what was going through the minds of, of those officers that uh, that seemed like, you know, a, a proper exercise of, of policing authority. Well, it was kind of a test in many ways. Uh, one of the things that was tested was to see whether uh, Americans are good Germans, particularly people, uh, and I hate to say it, uh, uh, wearing badges and carrying guns. A lot of them were perfectly fine to be the, uh, the, 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 the hands and feet, if you will, of the, the entity, the machine that's behind all of this and, and do this to us. They didn't care. You know, even if they thought that it was ridiculous, they were willing to do it and do it in extremists. You know, you and I and everybody else has seen these videos of people being tackled and, and, and you know, roughed up and, and treated as if they were some kind of terrorist or armed, armed felon, you know, over nothing, over, you know, not wearing a stupid mask. Uh, and that's, that's worrisome. You know, it's bad enough that we have to deal with people like Gates and Biden uh, and all the other high muckety mucks. But we also have to worry about the thousands and thousands, if not millions of people in this country who are more than happy to go along with this kind of thing. I think it's going to come down to, as most things do, at the individual level, you've got to know when you are going to say no and then stick to it. Yes, absolutely. And if we've learned anything, uh, fool me once, 
shame on me, fool me twice. Shame on you, fool me twice. Shame on me. Ask questions. Do not take at face value that these people are well-intended. Uh, what was it Reagan said? Trust, but verify. People ought to have their thinking caps on now and look with a jaundiced eye upon anything that they're told by the government, by big corporations, by these social media outlets. Suspicion, unfortunately, now ought to be uh, the prime directive and the, the prime motivator for everything that we do. Amen, bro. Eric, thanks so much for dropping by. Always great to visit with you, my friend. Likewise, Brian. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. A shout out here to SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com. Now, they're located in St. George, Utah. Yes, they have a physical store there, 779 South Bluff Street. But uh, I don't care where you live. If you are interested in sewing, if you're interested in long-arm quilting, embroidery, anything like that, these are the folks you want to turn to. They have the very best machines from entry-level sewing machines right up to the really high-dollar, you know, long-arm quilting machines. But the cool thing about Sewing and Quilting Center is they will teach you how to use the machine you buy from them. Free classes, how to use your machine. I mean, that's uh, that's a pretty good way to guarantee you're going to get proper use of that machine. And they'll service it after you've bought it. They will sell you the supplies, the thread, the everything that you need to get in there and make the most of what's more than just a hobby, but really a, a means of creation for a lot of people. Check it out. Someone in your life loves sewing, loves quilting. Sewingandquiltingcenter.com, that's the place you need to point them. Well, you know, as an information junkie or a recovering information junkie, I can attest that it's really hard to break the habit of wanting to know what's dominating the news cycle today. Sometimes I think it's just morbid curiosity. Sometimes it's just, you know, a desire to see, okay, what weirdness are we going to expect today? But I've got a great article here from Paul Rosenberg about how the news is designed to break your will. And maybe this will uh, maybe this will hit you the way it hit me, but kind of makes me reevaluate just how much news content I really want to consume. He says more or less every adult knows there are serious problems with the news, by which I refer to the alphabet soup of news organizations plus fact-checked social media. Now he says most of them, however, are smallish things, legitimately bad, but really not the central issue. He says what matters most about the news is that it's designed, structured, to soften and break human will. All else pales compared to this. And that breaking of will, he says, turns on a single fact. That acts of will require you to expend energy. So every time you see a lie and you say, I don't think so, you have to expend energy. Energy that could have been used for other things. And if the people around you believe the lie, well, the energy you require to maintain your will shoots sky high. So if you have to spend energy objecting to a lie 5 or 10 or 20 times per day over weeks or months, you'll have to spend a lot of energy. And sooner or later, you'll be worn out. That's when your subconscious mind will step in to save you from burnout. 
By providing plausible reasons to give in, compliance comes far too easily for human beings. Coach Vince Lombardi used to say, fatigue makes cowards of us all. And Paul Rosenberg says that's true, but none of us want to seem like a coward. And so our brilliant brains fill the gap. They give our conscious minds reasons to stop spending all that energy. So as long as you stay plugged into the media complex, this will happen to you. Your will is all but certain to be softened and ultimately broken. I guess it's not so much a matter of uh, trying to convince you as much as they're just trying to wear us down. And Paul Rosenberg says the energy requirements to maintain your will become simply too high and your self-preservation systems will guide you into wasting less energy. Now, he says, in fairness, I should add that many media employees don't realize this is happening to their viewers, and certainly not at first. He says their bosses very likely know this, and very certainly intelligence agencies, at least at the higher levels, know all about this. That's because the principle behind it has been widely known for at least a century now. Consider these passages from one of its developers, Edward Bernays, quote, We are governed, our minds molded, our tastes formed, our ideas suggested, largely by men we've never heard of. If we understand the mechanisms and motives of the group mind, it's now possible to control and regiment the masses according to our will without their knowing it. End quote. See, Bernays thought these were good things. And he made a lot of money teaching governments and corporations how to use them starting in World War I. Here in comparison is a passage from psychologist Eric Fromm, who did not think this was a good thing. Quote, A vast sector of modern advertising does not appeal to reason, but emotion, but to emotion rather. Like any other kind of hypnoid suggestion, it tries to impress its objects emotionally and then to make them submit intellectually. End quote. So the term hypnoid is now out of use, but hypnoid state referred to an absence of mind or consciousness produced by intense daydreams. That is a state of immersion in a fantasy, like when watching TV or being swallowed up in social media. Now, the ironic thing about this breaking of human will is that big lies work better than small ones. And it seems that rooting a big lie isn't much harder than rooting a small one. And it's certain that opposing a big lie, one that seemingly everyone has believed, requires a very large expense of energy. Hitler and Goebbels took over a good portion of two continents using this technique. See, the big liars rely upon the fact that you haven't the strength to resist over time. So they'll bombard you with the same unfounded assertions and show you millions of people who adamantly believe them. Social media, by the way, is great at this. And at first you'll be incredulous, but each time you object, you'll have to spend energy. After doing this over and over, you'll be tired, especially so if the assertions come at the end of a long day or as you roll out of bed. None of us have limitless energy, and eventually you will be tired, and that's when they win. So, what do you do about it? You ready for this? The solution's very simple and obvious. Turn it off. Paul Rosenberg says, please believe me that you do not need TV news or social media. These are habits, even addictions. But once you walk away from them, you'll find that your life gets better, not worse. That accomplished, you can get whatever news you need, and you probably need less than you think, by surfing the independent Internet. And by independent Internet, he says, not Facebook, not Google, not Twitter, 
you'll be quite able to find the information you need, and you'll have to consider the bias of each source, but you're probably doing that anyway. If you want to watch certain TV shows, just buy the DVDs, then watch them as you wish. Trade them with your friends and so on, but don't watch regular TV. He says there is no path to victory in this fight, and it is a fight for your mind, except to walk away from the rigged game. If you stay tuned in, you will lose, and you'll find reasons, very often very creative ones, to submit. And from then on, your instincts will be to defend that choice, whichever one you submitted to, and to resent anyone who didn't submit. Now, you can certainly pull yourself out of that loop, but you'll have wasted a lot of time and energy in the process. So just a couple of last words here. He says, TV and social media are the organs of a demanding and consuming culture. To whatever degree you're locked into it, that's how much you're locked out of your individual development. Now, he says, I know I'm raging against the highest gods of the age here. But he also says, I'm not fundamentally wrong, and a better life for you and your family awaits. So he says, let me leave you with a passage from Alexis de Tocqueville's Democracy in America, Volume 2, Book 4, Chapter 6. It's another description of the process. Quote, The will of man is not shattered, but softened, bent, and guided. Such a power does not destroy, but it prevents existence. It does not tyrannize, but it compresses, elevates, extinguishes, and stupefies a people. End quote. And so Paul Rosenberg concludes by saying, this is a good time to walk away from something that is structured to make use of us. This is the second story, by the way, that I've seen in the last 24 hours of people urging, step away from social media. And I would, I would add to, to, to the point that you find yourself feeling anger or feeling fear as you watch the news, that should be a really huge tell that you are being manipulated. And sadly, I know, I, I fall into the category, well, Brian, sometimes when I listen to you, that's what I'm feeling. I'm feeling anger. Or I'm, I'm feeling fear. And it's true. And I, and I apologize for being the, the delivery system sometimes. I hope you'll understand my motivation isn't so much to get people scared out of their wits, but to bring awareness or to bring clarity to what's going on around us. But sometimes, sometimes, that's the direction I go. All I'm asking you to understand is it bugs me just like it bugs you. I don't like to find myself going there, but... You know, I've, I've been at this for a long time, and I feel like I'm fairly savvy. I can, I can recognize when someone's trying to manipulate me, but I still get sucked in. But I'm going to go back to what Paul Rosenberg is saying. It's time to unplug, and it's time to walk away from something that's structured to break your will and to make you just throw your hands in the air and say, okay, okay, I, look, I'm not going to believe it, but I'm going to quit pushing back against it. Forget that. We only have a limited amount of moral energy to which we can apply, you know, in our daily lives. Don't waste it on things that uh, are unnecessary. Don't invite things into your life that don't bring value into your life. I can tell you this, the world does start looking a whole lot more normal after just a few days away from media. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. And we are back. Dixie Chiropractic is one of my sponsors here on The Brian Hyde Show. That's Dr. Ward Wagner. And he says there's three groups of people in particular I'd like you to, uh, to introduce me to, Brian. So these are the people who I want to point toward Dixie Chiropractic. Anyone who has been injured in a car accident, you really should get in touch with Dr. Wagner. And again, this is for my listeners in southern Utah. Go to DixieChiro.com. If you have bulging or herniated discs, you want to check out their $99 intro special. That's two treatments plus massage. You can simply get in touch with the office for more information, again, at DixieChiro.com. Or if you or a loved one is dealing with neuropathy, Here's the $99 Calmare treatment plus massage. Again, DixieChiro.com. As you make the appointment, please let them know that uh, you heard about them on this program. Well, you know, no matter how skeptical a person may be about conspiracy theories, it's clear that a surprising number of them actually have panned out. In fact, I have friends who have said, I'm not even going to call them conspiracy theories anymore. They're more like spoiler alerts. I think it was Will Grigg, the late, great Will Grigg, who said... You know, conspiracy theorists most often tend to be people who notice and say something, you know, about things that they shouldn't have noticed. <laughs> it's like, yep, that seems about right. I've got a great, uh, a great article here from El Gato Malo on conspiracies about conspiracy theorists. And El Gato Malo starts out by saying, my goodness, these conspiracy theorists certainly do have vivid imaginations. Here is a, uh, an article from uh, Motherboard by Vice. Listen to this headline. This is from February 28th, 2020. Anti-vaxxers are terrified the government will enforce a vaccine for coronavirus. The subheadline here, anti-vax groups on social media are claiming the spread of the disease will lead to mandatory vaccinations and unlimited surveillance. Ha! What a bunch of nut jobs they were. I mean, as El Gato Malo says, uh, that would be terribly divisive, counter to rights, and directly antagonistic to people who just want bodily autonomy. Can you even imagine public officials doing something like that? Pretty far-fetched. Oh, wait, look, here's a, here's a text, or a tweet, rather, from Mayor Lori Lightfoot from Chicago from December 21st of 2021. To put it simply, if you have been living vaccine-free, your time is up. If you wish to live life with, as with the ease to do the things you love, you must be vaxxed. This health order may pose an inconvenience to the unvaccinated, and in fact, it is inconvenient by design. Well, imagine that. How about health bodies using disease to engage in surveillance? Oh, look, Vice is back. This is from the motherboard column. CDC tracked millions of phones to see if Americans followed lockdown procedures or lockdown orders, rather. Newly released documents show the CDC planned to use phone location data to monitor schools and churches and wanted to use the data for many non-COVID-19 purposes, too. That's from May 3rd, May 3rd of this year, so just a couple of weeks ago. How about governments doing the same and mitigating privacy altogether? Here's a tweet from Disclose.tv. EU Commission is expected to publish the draft law based on chat control or on on chat control tomorrow. Lawmakers seek AI based checks of all message content and images directly on users devices. Critics say this is an attack on the digital privacy of correspondence and leads to mass surveillance. 
And Elgato Malo says, ha, I mean, that's just silly. What's next? Some wild-eyed claims that they want universal digital ID? Oh, wait. Here's another headline. World Health Organization is creating a global vax port? Yep, here's the headline. This is uh, this is, this one just comes right out and says it. A national vaccine pass has been quietly rolled out, and red states are getting on board. That's from Forbes magazine. Then making it international and inescapable. The article says, building a trust framework, the World Health Organization will convene member states and leaders of COVID-19 immunization credential technology groups to recognize different vaccine certificates across nations and regions, a top vaccination credential initiative official told Politico's Ben Leonard. The World Health Organization is bringing together the groups to develop a trust framework that would allow countries to verify whether vaccine credentials are legitimate. That's according to Brian Anderson, chief digital health physician at MITRE and a co-founder of VCI. Why does it matter? The effort would be to the effort would aid international travel by allowing proof of vaccination to be more easily shared and verified, Anderson said. Many countries and regions have different standards for proof of inoculation, creating confusion for travelers and officials. Anderson said it's piecemeal, not coordinated and done nation to nation. It can be a real challenge. Elgato Malo says, I mean, what will these prolific conspiracy boffins think up next? Some sort of state-run digital currencies to link to this new ID and surveillance state? I mean, who would even suggest something like that? Oh, wait. Look, here's a tweet from the Federal Reserve. What is a central bank digital currency, or CBDC? A CBDC is a digital form of central bank money that's widely available to the general public. Whoa. And anyway, what's the worst that could happen? I don't know if this one's just a Photoshop, but uh, it's a credit card reader, and it says, Card declined. Please delete all tweets that violate your bank's hate speech policies to process payment. Elgato Malo says, I mean, they told us this is all benign, right? Source, dude, trust me. (laughs) It's not like they ever lied to us before, or if they did, I'm sure it was for our own good. Oh, look at this headline. Fauci said U.S. government held off promoting face masks because it knew shortages were so bad that even doctors couldn't get enough. You do remember this, right? Sorry if this is painful. This is like ripping the scab off, but hey. As Elgato Malo says, it's not like they're seeking to give this power to deeply compromised and captured transnational agencies with no accountability whatsoever and grant them authority over citizens who had no say in the matter. Here's another tweet from Together DEC. The biggest global power grab we've seen in our lifetimes. How serious is the threat from the World Health Organization pandemic treaty? Many are concerned that the U.S. amendments to the World Health Organization pandemic treaty will transfer sovereignty over public health policy to an unelected, unaccountable global organization. How worried should we be? This is from the dailyskeptic.org. Actually, sounds like a good article to read. So Elgato Malo says, look, let's all take a breath. I'm sure you're just overwrought in imagining things. There are no conspiracies. No one is out to get you, least of all some shadowy Davos cabal. And if they were, if they were really trying to do this to you, I'm sure they would not just come right out and tell you in some sort of James Bond villain megalomaniacal monologue. I mean, come on, this is real life. No one actually does that. Oh, wait. Look, here's a tweet from the World Economic Forum. Welcome to 2030. 
I own nothing, have no privacy, and life has never been better. Elgato Malo says, and hey, I'm sure they'll probably manage to keep those first two promises, but watch out for that third one, though. I have some real doubts about it. I got a link to this in the article, or to this article in the show notes, which you'll find at thebrianheidshow.com. Strongly recommend you, uh, if you haven't subscribed to the uh, Boricuato, let me try that again, Boricuagato substack. It is worth your time. In fact, I was looking at a list last week of uh, what, uh, I guess what somebody had drawn up some kind of a flow chart of, these are the primary sources of misinformation when it comes to COVID, I, I presume. Anyway, um, in the top 20 was Ilgato Malo. I was kind of happy for that. I was like, ah, this is great. In fact, I noticed about four or five out of the 20 top 20 sources of disinformation are substacks that I have subscribed to and that I, you know, peruse on a regular basis. I mean, some people might think, oh my goodness, look, I'm I'm just tapped into all kinds of sources of disinformation. But for me, that's actually, uh, that's a bonus. That's a plus. When I consider who it is who's calling it disinformation, that's when I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, I definitely want to know what they have to say. Just because... I don't know. There's there's enough of these uh, information sources out there, and there's enough uh, official bodies out there that well, you have to believe this, and this is what constitutes the boundaries of of acceptable opinion. I've reached the point where most mainstream sources, if they're saying something, I'm likely to take a look in the opposite direction just to see if it's 180 degrees from what they're trying to tell me. And you know what? More often than not, it is. You probably noticed this pattern too. The key here, though, is being willing to think for yourself, being willing to do your own original research, to go to original sources wherever possible, and always, always question and be skeptical about anything official that is being tossed in your direction. I say this often, but it really needs to be ingrained and written on our hearts. Truth is not something that is handed to you by someone in authority. It's something you have to go after yourself, and it requires effort, and it requires persistence, and sometimes it requires more than just a little bit of courage, but it's worth it. This is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. This is a program that exists for the purpose of encouraging and inspiring people to take ownership of their own worldview. I know it's a lot easier to just sit back and kind of passively absorb whatever's coming at you out of your computer screen or television screen or your telephone screen. I'm here to tell you that it is worth every bit of effort, every bit of sweat and toil to own your worldview by thinking as critically and as clearly and independently as you can about the information that you're taking in. And I'm very grateful to be one of the many voices out there trying to help point people towards the light Not because I have all the answers, but because there were others who pointed the way to me. 
I'm trying to pay that favor along to those who are following along, slogging their way out of the swamp of misinformation. Got some fun stuff to cover in this hour, too. We're going to talk about uh, the idea of uh, Elon Musk buying up and fixing some of the more woke corporations among us. Talk a little bit about uh, whether your vote really does much to secure your liberty. I know I've pushed on this yesterday. I'm going to push on a little bit more today. Got a great article from Bertine Schaefer about the real reason libertarians don't matter. Also, we're going to talk about developing a solid work ethic. One of the best examples you can see of what a great work ethic looks like is that amazing dancer Fred Astaire and his incomparable dance skills. Plus, we'll talk about how to do how to pick up on the telltale signs of a false flag operation. Just a list of some of the easy to recognize ones. And last but not least, we'll talk about how uh, the question, are they really out to get me? Can be answered both yes and no, depending on the level of bureaucracy that you're dealing with. Let's start by talking about why so many people seem supportive of Elon Musk buying and buying up and fixing some of the more woke corporations among us. I mean, when when he made his first overtures to uh, take control and to purchase Twitter, one of the first things I started to see was people saying, hey, could you buy Coca-Cola? Could you buy Disney? Could you, you know, fix them as well? Robert E. Wright, writing for the American Institute for Economic Research, asks about a Musk-inspired anti-ESG takeover wave. And he says, it's fun to see memes suggesting that Elon Musk should buy Alphabet or Amazon or Coca-Cola, Disney, Meta, Netflix, YouTube, and so forth. But of course, he can't afford all of that. But we can. And he says, by we, I mean value investors. Now, Musk's purchase of Twitter has validated those critiques, and he gives you several examples, at least four of them, of ESG-based investment. That's environment, social, governance, investment, which, despite its weak financial record, currently constitutes about $2.7 trillion globally. And as it has demonstrated the potential power of anti-ESG funds, which which he has called the Friedman Funds after Milton Friedman. So an anti-ESG Friedman fund would firstly short companies overvalued due to capricious or government-dictated ESG metrics and buy companies undervalued due to said metrics. And secondly, buy controlling interests in potentially valuable companies that are going broke or at least earning less than they could because they went woke, as Musk and his investors recently did. Now, Robert writes says the goal of the fund would be to earn above-average risk-adjusted returns, period. But the effect of the fund would be to increase financial market efficiency and economic productivity by punishing deviations from rational valuations and rational business decision-making processes. See, this first approach, he says, is widely called value investing. Although understood in general terms by investors since at least the 18th century, Benjamin Graham popularized and quantified the approach in the first half of the 20th century. The gist is to buy stocks when their market price falls below their rational value and to sell or short them when their market price exceeds their rational value. Value investors tend to buy and hold, ignoring daily price gyrations, so long as the market price remains remains rather near rational value the price toward which the stock will gravitate in anything approaching an efficient market. Robert Wright says a stock's price might deviate somewhat from its rational value because investors like or hate the company because of what it makes or how it makes it or who runs it or something its executives say or do. 
In other words, the shares of presumably good companies can gain from a halo effect. While shares of allegedly bad companies sometimes languish due to a devil's horn effect. Some investors overestimate the importance of these various soft factors on other investors, causing them to value the stock higher, that's the halo, or lower, that's the horn, than the rational investor does. So ESG funds and ESG ratings given regulatory teeth by the Securities and Exchange Commission directly or indirectly through bond rating agencies could produce significant halo slash horn effects that value investors could exploit for their own gain while reducing financial system system fragility in the process. Because ESG represents politicized and largely subjective concepts, ESG ratings can diverge significantly from reality. Unless checked by value investors, they could easily lead to bubbles, too much investment in certain assets like dot-coms or mortgage-backed securities, or anti-bubbles, too little investments in certain assets like fossil fuels. He says ESG bubbles could be particularly costly because the overinvestment might go into companies that actually hurt the environment or the downtrodden. As scholars like Ozzy Zenner, author of Green Illusions, have been arguing, and as Michael Moore tried to explain to fellow progressives in his 2019 documentary, Planet of the Humans, very few green technologies provide net environmental benefits because they're inefficient, rely on tax subsidies, and, and need rare earth, minerals, rare earth metals to work, or have major environmental side effects, and so forth. Similarly, as recently pointed out by the Harvard Business Review, ESG ratings are not correlated with better environmental or labor regulatory compliance. Moreover, he says many social justice initiatives at major corporations, like many government programs, aid Democrat politicians, but do little or nothing to help American Indians, blacks, Hispanics, women, or the poor. Once exposed, ESG darlings could become dogs overnight, hurting investors and potentially sparking a financial crisis. Now, the second approach that a Friedman fund could take is typically frowned upon. According to the so-called Wall Street rule, investors who do not like management decisions should sell instead of raising a stink. But he says it's a good rule of thumb because corporate management is usually well entrenched and most stockholder proposals fail because managers dominate corporate elections due to their control of the proxy mechanism and employee-owned shares. So a few simple rule changes like cumulative voting, Secret ballots, proxy mechanism reform, and larger board and board member and executive stock holdings would make it easier for individual shareholders and institutional investors to pressure management to maximize long-run stockholder returns by making more rational business decisions, like not alienating their median customer to please vocal extremists. Now, until then, Friedman funds have to be willing to purchase underachieving companies like Twitter, through stock market purchase of controlling stakes, tender offers, or proxy votes. Yes, Robert Wright says such tactics are often derided as corporate rating, but the poor state of corporate governance can render such rates economically necessary. In the 1980s and 90s, the takeover of poorly performing corporations by funds led by corporate raiders like Carl Ichan and leveraged buyout firms like Kohlberg, Kravis, and Roberts invigorated the U.S. economy by forcing rational changes at stagnating or inefficient companies. It's no accident that the classic film on corporate takeovers, Other People's Money, hit theaters in 1991. Its famous climax pitted Lawrence Larry the Liquidator Garfield, played by Danny DeVito of Garfield Investments, against Andrew Jorgensen, played by Gregory Peck, 
head of the failing New England Wire and Cable Company, the biggest employer in a small Rhode Island town. At the company's annual stockholder meeting, Jorgensen argued, like every other adherent of the stakeholder theory of the corporation, a business is worth more than the price of its stock. It's the place where we earn our living, where we meet our friends, and dream our dreams. After being derided by Jorgensen as a greedy, big-city corporate raider who builds nothing and is basically committing murder, here's Garfield's retort. This company is dead. I didn't kill it. Don't blame me. It was dead when I got here. It's too late for prayers, for even if the prayers were answered and a miracle occurred and the yen did this and the dollar did that and the infrastructure did the other thing, we would still be dead. You know why? Fiber optics, new technologies, obsolescence. We're dead, all right. We're just not broke. And you know the surest way to go broke? Keep getting an increasing share of a shrinking market down the tubes, slow and sure. Now, granted, Musk's play on Twitter somewhat different. Unlike buggy whips, microblogging isn't a doomed industry yet. But clearly, Twitter, despite its sizable first-mover advantage, was losing market share to direct competitors like Parler, as well as newer social media concepts like Clubhouse and Mastodon. I'll have a link to this article in the show notes. Again, this is Robert E. Wright, Senior Research Fellow at the American Institute for Economic Research. You'll learn a little something here. You might have to break out the dictionary to look up the terms you don't understand. I know I had to. But this is uh, definitely a thought-provoking article. And maybe just one more way for a little common sense to prevail. Check it out in the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. If you're one of the thousands of people relocating to the Intermountain West, particularly if you are going to land in the state of Utah or the state of Idaho, you need to talk to my friend Heather Turner and her team at Patriot Home Mortgage. The Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage has the experience, the clout, and the stability to get you the loan you need without delay. And I would encourage you to get in touch with her by calling 435-703-4522. You can stop by her office in St. George, Utah. They're located at 619 South Bluff Street. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386. And Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. So I, I know I, I raised a little bit of blood pressure yesterday for a few folks by questioning whether you should vote at all. Does your voting really just set you up to be separated from your liberty? And I'm going to push a little bit today. Um, this is a, this is an older article written by Bertine Schaefer. The real reason libertarians don't matter. And while it stings, it stings because it really rings true in many ways. She says, I still hear some liberty advocates talking about how we can achieve freedom through the political system by electing the right representatives, getting good laws passed, etc. So she says, I thought I might want to dust off an old article from 2016 and put it out there again. It's her own explanation. She says, I think it's a pretty good one of why that can never work. So Bertine Schaefer writes, a Facebook friend recently asked principled, non-voting libertarians to explain their reasoning to her, to explain why in this year of all years, when the libertarian candidate actually has a shot at winning, why they're withholding their votes. It's a reasonable question. And she says, I'm going to do my best to give her an answer with the qualification that while I've considered myself a principled non-voter in the past, I now consider myself a pragmatic one. 
Bertine Schaefer says, my stance on voting changed with Ron Paul's candidacy. I realized that I was willing to participate in a system I believed to be deeply wrong if it meant making a change that could save thousands, possibly hundreds of thousands of lives by curtailing war, ending the war on drugs, and reining in some of the most unaccountable and harmful federal agencies. Now, she says, I took a lot of flack for it from some principled libertarians for whom I have a great deal of respect. But, she says, I do not regret my choice. I believed there was a real chance of accomplishing good. The bottom line for me was saving lives by voting. I trusted Dr. Paul based on a long track record of sticking to his principles to do his best to accomplish those things. And I acted on those beliefs. But Bertine Schaefer says, I see things a little differently now. I've had a closer look at how the system works, and I believe I have a better understanding of why this system of electing representatives, especially at the federal level, can never be an effective way of achieving liberty. Now, she says, to be clear, I'm talking specifically about electing people to office. I'm not dismissing the potential for local ballot initiatives to have an impact. In fact, we've seen the fruits of such initiatives in relaxing the medical marijuana laws across the country, which is a significant step for liberty. But ballot initiatives are a very different animal from elections for office and an entire life form removed from those who from those for the from those for the presidency. She says Jeff Tucker wrote recently of an encounter he had with someone high up in the Republican political campaign who contributed the absence of a libertarian angle in Republican campaigns to the fact that libertarians don't vote. Everyone knows that. That's why they don't matter. Now, she says Jeff's political beast was only half right. Yes, politicians running for office care about votes, but just as much as votes, indeed as a critical means of securing votes, they care about money. They care about campaign contributions, and they care about maintaining the relationships with the people, the corporations, and the other institutions that keep that money flowing to them. There is no law that can change this. Or if you think there is, ask yourself who will be charged with enforcing that law, and then who controls that entity or entities. So here's the thing to understand. The things libertarians want, freedom, less government interference in markets and in personal choices, non-interventionist foreign policy, Yeah, there's no money in these things for politicians. There are no big corporations and very few rich people who are willing to pay tons of money to politicians to refrain from intervening in markets or to keep the troops home or to let the people ingest whatever substances they want to. In fact, it's just the opposite. Corporations have long been in the business of paying politicians to intervene in markets on their behalf, to erect barriers to competition, and in some cases to squash a particular competitor. Competition is wonderful for society as a whole, but it's not so great if you're one of the ones doing the competing. It's hard, and sometimes you lose. Sometimes, if you're big enough, it's just easier to send some money in the direction of people who can discover antitrust violations in your competitors' business practices. So, Bertine Schaefer says, understand behind the empty campaign promises. Politicians have essentially two things to offer to the people who support them. Number one, power in the form of regulatory and other control over competitors and others who may get in the way of a particular entity remaining comfortably profitable. Number two, money. Now, not their own money, of course, your money and my money, taken from us in taxes and in the continual devaluation of the government-issued money we all use. 
Politicians can give money to their supporters in the form of contracts for things like military equipment and public works projects or in less direct ways, like mandating that government schools all stock epinephrine injectors that meet the same very specific product requirements that your device happens to meet. And the list goes on. What's not on this list, though, is liberty. Why? Because nowhere in this game is there an advantage to selling liberty. Now, she says, this point was driven home to me a few years ago when I asked a California senator's policy consultant if his boss would consider relaxing business restrictions as a way to help parents of children with special needs create the services they need. And she says he practically laughed at me. There was nothing in it for his boss or for his boss's supporters in reducing the very control that he uses to buy support. Now, Bertine Schaefer says, in theory, politicians could offer liberty to their supporters, They could offer to cut back regulations to end military aggression, but who's going to pay them for that? Again, these are things that would benefit everyone, all of society. But the game of politics is not about benefiting all of society. And the widely accepted belief that it is, is perhaps the most dangerous lie ever crafted. In order for a seeker of liberty to win at this game, that person would have to compete with the campaign donations and other inducements made by military contractors, major pharmaceutical companies, oil companies. But these are all entities that have been made rich by virtue of government interventions and direct largesse. How can a liberty seeker hope to offer the same level of financial inducements to politicians as these people when they're not also on the receiving end of the government slush? So this is the real reason that libertarians don't matter in the political sphere. It's not because they don't vote. It's not because it's because they rather because they don't participate in the real game of politics, the interest driven game that can never reward a player who wishes to dismantle the very engine of that game. People win at the game of politics by buying and selling political power over other people's lives and resources. And a player who wants to reduce that power will not find themselves rewarded within that game. They will find themselves spat out of it. That's why the political beasts are laughing at us. It's not because we don't vote. It's because we don't steal. And for these people, for people who never even question the morality of using state violence to get what they want, that's the biggest joke in the world. She says, that's why I don't believe it makes sense for a libertarian to vote. Voting is simply not a realm in which liberty wins. So the obvious question then from the person who wants me to vote is, why not do it anyway, though? In case you're wrong, what harm can it do? Here's the harm that it does. By perpetuating the lie that voting can be an effective way of advancing liberty, it helps direct people's energy and focus away from efforts that actually do have the potential to advance liberty. And she says, I'm not going to contribute to that. I'm not going to prop up the charade that we control our government or that it represents the people. She says, what people? What does that even mean? Which ones? The ones who disagree with each other? The government is owned by military contractors and pharmaceutical companies and a host of other concerns that are all feeding from that government trough in one way or another. None of this is going to be changed by voting, and the longer anyone pursues voting as a solution, the longer they are not seeking real solutions. I know, it's provocative. And it even raises my eyebrows, but I I still think she's right. I'll have a link to Bertine Schaefer's article in my show notes. Check it out for yourself at thebrianhydeshow.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This 
is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I want to thank LifesavingFood.com for being one of my sponsors. You know, a good food storage supply is a great source of peace of mind, particularly as you see food storage prices going up and hear about rumors of food shortages and other breakdowns in the supply chain. It's just nice to know that you have something on which you could fall back if a problem were to arise. In fact, it seems to make more sense every day. Click on the link I provide under my sponsors in my show notes, lifesavingfood.com. Peace of mind is ultimately what you're going to get. So why not grab some? Well, thank heaven for people who have developed a serious work ethic. And if you want to see a perfect example of what that looks like, you can look no further than Fred Astaire and his dance skills. This is an article from M.B. Matthews published on uh, AmericanThinker.com. M.B. Matthews says, As I watch old Fred Astaire movies, I was struck by the sheer perfection of his movements and his flawless syncopation. I had the conscious thought that America would be so much better off if Fred Astaire's work ethic and search for perfection were applied to our own culture. One Fred Astaire dance in particular stands out as the quintessence of hard work and purity of effort. Putting on the Ritz, Astaire in his iconic top hat and tails takes the music and reshapes it to his dance. He doesn't merely dance to the music, the music dances to him. With almost 4 million views, and and this is linked in the article, this clip is quintessentially Astaire. It is sheer perfection. Effortlessly, or so it appears, he moves every part of body and mind using a cane as a prop to create a syncopated flow that's sublime and strikes the appreciative viewer somewhere way back in the lizard brain. It is primitive while being sophisticated beyond belief. According to John Mueller, an American political scholar and expert on on the dance, the wow factor in putting on the Ritz is use of delayed rhythmic resolution, a staggering off-balance passage emphasized by the unorthodox stresses in the lyric, suddenly resolves satisfyingly on a held note, followed by the forceful assertion of the title phrase. Mueller's description is a long way of saying that what Astaire did in this particular number was impossible in anyone else's hands or feet. Astaire created from whole cloth a way of dancing that forevermore would have his elegance stamped on it. Now, M.B. Matthews says, reading Astaire's autobiography is revealing. While not a great literary work, it wasn't meant to be. It was simply and honestly his childhood vaudeville story with his sister in a stage act that traced from when they were small children to when he struck out on his own. He later went on to Hollywood to dance with the most beautiful and talented actresses of those days. Ginger Rogers was not his only dance partner. There were other beauties like Rita Hayworth, Eleanor Powell, Leslie Caron, Leslie and Sid Charisse with her sultry litheness. Opinions differ as to who was his best partner. I think M.B. Matthews would probably come down on the side of Ginger. Fred Astaire's work ethic was almost pathological. He worried some of his dances to death by rehearsing them scores of times, sometimes to the point where Ginger Rogers' feet were bleeding. To say he was a perfectionist is to minimize his modus operandi. He micromanaged everything because he rightly surmised that no one knew better than he what would work best. Now, Astaire directed the people doing the filming of his dances never to shoot anything but full body shots 
because it interfered, interfered rather with the flow of the dance. And he was right. Astaire also curled his middle fingers while dancing because he felt they were too long. Such attention to detail. In addition to his God-given gift, made him the best dancer of any time in our history. There's never been another Fred Astaire, and while Gene Kelly and Donald O'Connor, two wonderful dancers of the same period, were excellent, they were different. M.B. Matthews says, Dance-wise, I can think of no 21st century dancers of Astaire's genre and accomplishment, except perhaps, perhaps Derek Huff, who has the control and talent to come close in movement, if not in style. Not even uh, even M- Mikhail uh, Barishnikov said he looked to Fred Astaire for inspiration. He said, no dancer can watch Fred Astaire and not know that we should all have been in another business. Wow, that's quite a compliment. So if you view our culture across all lines of endeavor, you may notice that people are succeeding and rising to the top of professions and businesses and entertainment with little going for them except a coarseness that demands you pay attention. The Fred Astaire ethic of working a problem from every angle a hundred times if necessary in order to make it the very best it can be is gone. In its place are expediency, greed, sloth, lust for power, and a total lack of reasonable solutions. Would that we had some Fred Astaire's in our government and in our agencies. Perhaps something would actually get done that helps Americans rather than hurts them and would be far more appealing to watch. The lessons of Fred Astaire loom large. A return to a strong work ethic and the courage to work a problem to an effective and salutary solution is in order. M.B. Matthews says, I look forward to the day when we wrest control of our country from the no-talents, the non-thinkers, the inept strategists, and give them to people who have actual solutions instead of all the tap dancing we're seeing now. By the way, if you get nothing else from this article, um, click on the link that takes you to Fred Astaire dancing, putting on the Ritz. It, it it will be a welcome break from all the you know drama and turmoil of the day, all the carnage out there, and hopefully put you in a good frame of mind just to appreciate that uh, there have been some really excellent human beings. Fred Astaire was one of them, and I'm sure there are such individuals today. But if you want to see what a real work ethic looks like and you want to appreciate it for, for what it can do, this is a great place to start. All right, a little bonus material for you here. How would you know the signs of a false flag? And I'm bringing this up because I'm hearing, you know, talk, the, the more conspiracy-minded among us are, are always looking for some angle. And, and, you know, sometimes it's true. Sometimes this could be the case. So it's not like, oh, they're always wrong. They're not. I think sometimes you can uh, turn, you know, searching for conspiracy theories into kind of a waste of time, but... Um, when, when the uh, young man shot up the uh, Buffalo supermarket over the weekend, there's a lot about that, that that just played so perfectly into the hands of politicians, you know, and, and they're, of course, using this to full advantage. They're out there, you know, making the stump speeches and waving the bloody shirt and trying, you know, to get people energized, you know, to, to demonize their opponents because they all obviously were in lockstep with this this young murderous man. And so at some level, I think you do have to ask the question, is it possible? Could this have been some kind of false flag? Anytime people in power start to find themselves in trouble, I always wonder, well, when are we going to see the false flag? Now, maybe that's just being cynical, but if you're looking to know, what would the signs of a false flag be? This is from Robert Barnes. 
And I think these actually are some pretty good rules of thumb. Number one, it asks you to respond emotionally rather than intellectually. Number two, a false flag will strip or reporting on a false flag will strip to the event of context, such as contemporary factual setting or geopolitical reality or even historical awareness. Number three, it demands a rush to judgment before a diligent, independent inquiry occurs. This is one of the reasons why I have developed the practice and I encourage my listeners, do not jump on the bandwagon and start chanting in unison with everybody until you've had a chance to really vet things and see if this is real. And, and know that I think this because I choose to think this, not because someone told me to. Number four, it collectivizes judgment by taking an individual event and demands you blame an entire culture, religion, race, ancestry, community, or country for it. I mean, for crying out loud, you've got uh, the President of the United States essentially demonizing half the voters in the country as being in lockstep with a murderous white supremacist. Number five, the only explicable motive offered for the offending action is irrational evil or utterly stupid immorality as it is against the rational interest of the offender to commit the act for the reasons alleged. These are the five signs of a false flag, again, from Robert Barnes. Worth considering. I'd especially pay attention if if you are being asked to respond emotionally rather than intellectually. Pay extra close attention. I pointed this out before. Mass shootings, we we tend to think, oh, they're happening everywhere because, you know, because the news media is hyper-focused on it. And there's that availability bias. Well, if I'm seeing it in the news, it must be happening everywhere. But it's not. And any time a mass shooting does happen, politicians know they have a very limited window of opportunity to get people engaged emotionally. People are going to be thinking poorly. They're going to be looking at the tragedy. They're going to be angry. They're going to be fearful. But that window of opportunity closes and rational thought returns fairly quickly. This is why politicians are very quick to gin up, you know, a lynch mob of sorts. We don't have time to think. Something has to be done. And this is when they're at their most dangerous. So I'll have a link to this in the show notes. Check it out for yourself. Signs of a false flag. It's not going to make you impervious to their propaganda, but you'll be better at spotting it. And that's a good start. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. I love my sponsors and I appreciate the fact that they make it possible for me to do this program to uh, to daily find the best information I can and then share it with you. And among those sponsors, HSL Ammo is uh, one of whom I'm I'm very very proud. HSL Ammo is located in St. George, Utah. They they make high quality new and remanufactured ammunition. As I've mentioned before, ammunition is a great thing, not only as a commodity and a store of value. So if you're if you're looking at ways to convert your money into something that's tangible, you can actually put your hands on and that will hold value, would be good for barter and things like this. That's it's a pretty safe bet. But there's also the prospect of turning your money into skill. And I mean skill at arms. 
There's just no substitute for being able to go to the shooting range or to go get training. These things require ammunition. HSL Ammunition is a proud supporter of the Second Amendment. They help people become responsible gun owners and shooters. You can click on the link I provide in my show notes. Go to their website. If you see something you need, please consider buying it from HSLAmmo.com. Well, I'm not trying to sound paranoid here, but uh, if you are serious about your freedom, I'm guessing that at some point you've asked the question, are they really out to get me? Got a great article here from Jeff Thomas from internationalman.com. And he says, the answer is yes and no. But I want you to, to hear his, uh, his explanation. He says, libertarians and others who seek to be left alone to run their lives habitually ask themselves the question, are they really out to get me? regarding their government. And he says, so what's the answer? Are they out to get you? Well, unfortunately, the answer isn't a simple yes or no. In fact, it's yes and no. The secret to understanding a government's intentions is that there's no unified overall objective, sentiment, or approach to dealing with the private sector. Quite the opposite. With any government, it couldn't be more fragmented or dysfunctional. So at the very lowest level of any government is the civil service, which is in any country a catch-all for those people who are so lacking in ability and imagination that they'd be unlikely to hold down a job in the private sector. Moreover, their level of motivation is likely to be so low that their dysfunction tends to coincide with extreme inefficiency. Now, to test that out, he says you just have to go visit the local Department of Motor Vehicles or a similar agency that does little except charge fees and waste time in order to provide you with a permit, which, if it were not required, you could happily do without. And most anyone in observing the individual behind the counter would observe the glassy stare and recognize that even though this person spends each working day behind this counter and may have been doing so for years, he or she takes virtually no interest in your personal concerns. And if you have questions, tends to find them a nuisance and an interruption in the endless drudgery of issuing paperwork. So there's a picture of an airplane. And it's a pilot in Canada who, being presented with a computer-driven list of tail tail letters that were authorized for him to choose from, immediately laughed when he saw the letters uh, on the list. He went up to the counter, circled the ones he chose, and the clerk processed the application brainlessly without even registering in his head what those letters suggested. I'm not going to say them because it's it's a little bit vulgar, but it definitely says F them in so many letters. Later, when the pilot had the letters emblazoned on his fuselage, it might not have been unlikely that an airport supervisor, seeing those 10-inch high letters on the side of his plane, raised an objection, at which time the pilot proudly produced his paperwork. As most anyone in the private sector can attest, as soon as the paperwork is presented, the civil servant in question simply says, oh, and then nods and lets you go on your way. But looking at this more deeply, what we're witnessing is that that percentage of the population who are once again lacking in ability and imagination are easy to program by the government to become automatons. That even if something strikes them as being somehow incorrect, as long as it has the state stamp of approval, well, then it's just fine. So at the lower level of government, we have those who are not out to get us. They're just merely borderline useless and have ended up with jobs in which that deficiency will not get them fired. They are, therefore, merely in the way. But as we go up the chain, however, where those in government are somewhat more ambitious, 
we find a greater desire to control. In fact, the closer we get to the higher echelons, the more truly they are out to get you. Jeff Thomas says, why should this be? And why should it be that the higher-ups tend to hate the, those that are most, hate the most, rather, those that are self-motivated, responsible, self-reliant, and imaginative? Well, unfortunately, he says the answer is simple. It's because those are the character traits that they lack. Jeff Thomas says, I'm sorry to have to say that in my many years of working directly with politicians and heads of governments, virtually all of them were highly evolved civil servant types. They had more drive, more guile, and larger egos than the lower-level bureaucrats, but they were just as parasitical and just as lacking in character traits that would make them productive people. With these individuals, he says, yes, they are out to get you. First, if they recognize that you possess traits that would make you productive, they will be highly jealous and suspicious of you. Second, they will understand that since you are productive and they are not, they must find a means by which they can use you as a cash cow to be milked as much as possible and as often as possible. So their purpose, therefore, is to regulate, control, and tax you in every way possible. And in this, they're quite simply predators. They may be Tory or Labor, Republican or Democrat, but they are predators nonetheless. And as such, they are a genuine threat to both your freedom and your well-being. Now, of course, all politicians play the game of party politics, doing all in their power to convince the electorate that they and their party are dramatically different from the opposing party, presenting their own party as the good guys and the opposing party as the bad guys. However, they are, as Judge Andrew Napolitano has repeatedly stated, merely two wings of the same bird of prey. Significantly, as both the top, or rather the bottom level and top level are separated by many other layers of bureaucracy, and as their common character traits are inability, dysfunction, etc., there's no cohesive set of principles upon which a government operates. Its purposes are control and usurpation. And they're backed by an imbroglio of, of confused and, co- and self-contradictory legislation and an increasingly large body of enforcement agencies. And although the individuals within these agencies tend to be incompetent and dysfunctional, they do tend to remain loyal to the whole. They may not get along with each other or work toward a unified set of goals or even have the same beliefs. They do, however, tend to do as they're told and blindly support the state above all else. Once all the above is grasped, he says the individual may do as this pilot has done. He's grasped grasped the dysfunction and parasitical nature of his government and has used their own computer-generated registration code to express his reaction to their authority. More to the point, he has used their laws, their bureaucracy, to express it legally. Now, that's an important point. Each individual essentially has three choices. He can either go along with those lesser beings who seek to control his life, or he can rebel and possibly be incarcerated for his efforts, or he can become creative and recognize that the laws and regulation of his country are a confused mess written by incompetent people and do all he can to assert his independence legally. Jeff Thomas says he can and should do everything in his power to operate his life as though he's not owned by the government of his home country, or any other government for that matter. Whenever a government tries to control the ownership of his real estate through taxation, he might seek out a jurisdiction that has no property tax. When they try to tax his income, he might seek out a country that has no income tax. If they try to restrict his migration, he might seek a second citizenship that does not restrict him. 
The point here is, freedom is not merely a vague historical idea or an excuse to celebrate with firecrackers once a year. It's a lifetime pursuit and should be taken on as such. Now, the pilot in question has made an initial stab at it. Hopefully, he, along with others, like you, the reader, will make it a central facet of his life's work. And I do like that approach there. Freedom is not just, you know, well, we, uh, we invoke it around election time. It's, it's primary election day where I live right now. And, um, you know, the election, election fever and political fever is running pretty high. And it gets a lot of people really, you know, on, on board with freedom. But it seems like their interest ebbs as the day comes and goes. Just kind of like the 4th of July. We talk about it. We pay, play a few patriotic songs and, you know, give it some lip service. But it really should be a central facet of your life's work. That doesn't mean that you need to, you know, dedicate yourself to, I'm going to be a columnist. I'm going to be a, a talk show host. Or, I'm, you know, I'm going to go out there and talk about it every day. It just means you have to consistently make it a priority. Find ways to live as freely as possible in a a very clearly unfree world. But the main thing you have to remember is you don't need to ask permission to do so. In fact, asking permission is probably the worst way to go about it because the people who want to control you are not about to give you permission to do things without their uh, license. They won't do it. So, act like a free man or woman, seize your freedom, go out there and make the difference you were born to make. This is The Brian Hyde Show.